Annie likes to dance. It's just mildly disconcerting when worship turns into hip hop in the middle of it. But but we're we're training her. Uh, it's uh, it's good to be here. Thank you for having us. It is great to be here with Rachel and Annie and Aaron as well. Um, uh, we love what the Lord's doing here, um, and we love what the Lord's doing together. Um, you know, friendship is a wonderful thing, uh, just in life. But friendship in the kingdom of God is something that is wonderful, and we love how the Lord is deepening and reinvigorating that in our relationship and. Uh, Friendship in the kingdom of God is a wonderful thing. Paul talked a lot about partnership in the gospel. He had friends who did ministry with. Jesus built not a staff team. Jesus had friends, yeah? And uh, he seemed to be establishing a model for us to follow on when it comes to doing the things of the kingdom. I suppose you could say that even started in the heart of who God is himself as Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, a deep friendship between who God himself is, God is love and God is relationship. And so when we model that out together, when we move in that together, something special happens. And so I just want to say that because it's important that we do not underestimate the gift and the power of friendship and partnership in the gospel. Yeah, we sh- You shouldn't underestimate it because it's, it's only ever through those kinds of depths of relationship that the kingdom actually gets established. God didn't really tell any of us to be lone rangers. He didn't tell any of us to set up our own ministries. He told us to live together in friendship and partnership in the gospel. And um, I think that actually God, as much as he completes us in our souls, in terms of what we can do for the kingdom, he actually keeps us in deficit when we're on our own in order that we can uh, uh, flow together, mutually submit ourselves to one another, and also complement one another in the graces that we all bring to the table. Because if we all had it all, then we'd be God, and we're not. It's important for us to remember that, isn't it? Yeah, God, God, um, we're not. We're not the only person that had a mes- didn't have a Messiah complex to say it was the Messiah. <laughs> yeah, and uh, it's important that we kind of keep ourselves humble. And the way we do that is recognizing what each other brings to the table. So yeah, it's great to be here. It's great to be amongst friends and partners in what the Lord is doing. I, I want to share some thoughts. I know you've been on this theme of oikonoma. Um, the guys in Emmanuel keep me going because it is probably my favorite phrase of uh, the last year or two. It's a Greek term. Uh, so sorry if some of this is repetitive. I'm probably going over some stuff that you've done before. But I just want to lay out some of the big picture um, understandings of what was being revealed and what the oikonoma is and how God is revealing that. Is that all right? Uh, try and bring you with me and hopefully you'll find it helpful this morning. Uh, I discovered this word a few years ago and um, I suppose you could say, I wouldn't be over-exaggerating to say that whatever this is, is what I feel I'm living for for the rest of my life. Right? Whatever this is. So I feel like when I speak about it, I speak about it like what I want to do for, for the rest of my life. Probably what I've done for most of it and what I want to do for the rest of it. Up until this point, and we, we come across this word as Neil and the guys will probably share with you in Ephesians chapter 3. And um, up until this point in Ephesians, in the book of Ephesians chapter 1 and chapter 2, as Paul seems to do in a lot of the letters, he's reminding them of their calling 
the church of their calling, of their identity in Christ, of the inheritance he's given them. But then he kind of shifts his letter in the second half of Ephesians, kind of in around Ephesians 3 and the 4, 5, and 6, as he seems to do in most of his letters. He shifts into, now that this is who you are, this is how you should live. So you get lots of stuff around practical teaching around how households are supposed to operate, husbands and wives, parents and children, how you should respect those in authority, how you should pray for those in authority, how you should live out your witness in front of non-Christian friends, how slaves and masters were to treat each other. Yeah. So now that you've found out who you are in Christ, now I've reminded you of your calling, this is how you should live a life worthy of that calling. That's what Paul is doing. And in the first couple of chapters, he's been saying that to the church in Ephesus, and Paul is, it's important, I want you to try and come with me uh, by kind of going back back to the future kind of stuff this morning, like try and get into the mindset of what's happening, right? There had never, there, there had been the children of Israel, the Exodus, all that God making them a people and all of that. So there was an idea that God wanted a people, right? But there'd never been church as we know it, right? There'd never been that. So when Paul is writing to the churches, he's writing to a whole new phenomenon that's taken off a movement of radical jesus followers right and little households of faith and churches are being established and this is all new right and paul is watching something unfold here and it's the most incredible thing that a man like you and me right is getting serious revelation from god from the holy spirit in order to help bring language and definition and a framework for how the church actually operates and it's just an unstoppable movement in the context of a Roman Empire that was ruling the world, right? All the history books can't now deny the power of the church. But at the time, in one way, nobody was really talking about it. In another way, they couldn't deny it because everybody was talking about the might and the power of Nero and Caesars and all of that kind of thing. And in the midst of it, this movement is going on and families of Jesus are being established and Paul is trying to show the world what's being revealed to him is that the centerpiece plan in God's heart for humanity is a church. The centerpiece plan for God's heart for humanity revealed in and through the person of Jesus and the work of Jesus obviously but the continuation of that work God's centerpiece plan for humanity is the church, is what what we're doing, not just today on a Sunday, but what we do throughout the week. And so it wasn't always like this. So I feel like at the moment in my life, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to step back into that time and go, how can I get this afresh? Because the problem is we've just grown up going to church, going to thing on a Sunday with a building. We sing a few songs, we hear the word, and that's church. But can you imagine that what Paul is actually doing is he's watching what happened through Jesus and what happened through the disciples who were continuing on the work of Jesus, all sorts of things started to break out and take, take shape. And Paul was having a revelation from God of how this thing was going to keep going, how it was going to be sustained, but how it was going to continue to move. It was never going to stop. It was never become this stuck, institutionalized the uh, over-centralized hierarchical thing. It was going to be this grassroots movement that kept on moving and moving and moving. You've probably heard us say this little phrase we heard from one of our friends one time, but the simplest way to say it is probably the most Irish way of saying it, which is for a movement to be a movement, it needs to keep on. Oh, it's brilliant, isn't it? It's like, but it's kind of primary one, 
but when we look at the church, we're not often, sure we're not, when we look at the church big picture, we're not moving, we're stuck, right? But for a movement to be a movement, it needs to keep on moving. There's a dynamic of perpetual movement in the church, or there should be. That's a dynamic when the Holy Spirit gets hold of it. So we're always expanding and we're always establishing, expanding and establishing, raising up leaders, letting them take it on, expanding, establishing, and trusting the leaders. And so we get to this point where Paul says this, Ephesians chapter 2, sorry, Ephesians chapter 3, 8 to 11. I think I have it. Is that scripture on the screen there, Kelly, on one of the slides? Ephesians chapter 3, if you've got a Bible, turn it up with me. If not, maybe be on the screen. Ephesians 3, 8 to 11, I think, yeah. So Paul is saying this, although I am the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. His intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to rulers and authorities in heavenly realms, according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him, and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. Just the first couple of verses again. Paul's saying that I am the least of all the Lord's people, but a grace was given to Paul, twofold grace, to preach the gospel, Right? That's self-explanatory. We know what that means. Proclaim Jesus. But then, verse 9, to make plain to everyone the administration of this, ministry, of this mystery. Some of your verses will say plan, or your translations will say to make, uh, to make plain the plan of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God. Right? This, what Paul is hearing hasn't always been known. It's been hidden in God for a while. There's mystery and revelation that's now being revealed in this moment. And we, what I want you to try and grasp is that we are living in those days. We are living in those days where mystery that's been held for thousands of years is now being revealed. And Paul is stepping into not information, but he's stepping into revelation. He's hearing something. Something is being revealed to him. And what is being revealed is that... Um, his intent, verse 10, was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God could be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly realms. So something is being made known through Paul, the manifold wisdom of God. Now, I think that word manifold means if you can imagine a prism where, you know, when you saw in, in school, like light shining in the prism and it all in a multifaceted way, lots of all the different beautiful colors radiating out from this prism. It's this manifold, multi-layered, textured, rich beauty of who God's glory is. This manifold wisdom is being revealed to principalities and powers. And so Paul's job description, if you like, right, is to preach the gospel and to make plain this mystery, this administration. And as, as has been described to you, this word administration comes from the word um, oikonoma, which oikos, the first part of that means house and noma, and the next part of that in Greek means law. So household law or household administration, the way that a house should be ordered. I always think the best way to tr think about this is, is um, uh, when you have like in our world today, we have um, like it's it's it, 
it's quite privatised and individualised the way we do family, isn't it? It's usually, you know, well, hopefully it's, you know, parents and, you know, two or three kids. But in those days, it was like maybe 30, 40 people when they talked about a household. They talked about, you know, slaves maybe that worked there and lodgers that were passing by and extended family members living together and all of that kind of a thing. So think a little bit more like your house on Christmas Day when all the aunts and uncles and people that you never see all through the year, they all kind of descend in your house, right? And you have, it's still family, isn't it? But if, if there was no order on that day, it would be chaos. Last year, just past, we were at my mom and dad's and uh, I have three sisters and we have 11 grandkids. Yeah, 11 grandkids um, under eight, right? So like, it's lovely, but it's not quiet, okay? And there is a degree of order that's needed to get them fed, to get presents open, to get then, you know, Christmas pudding after that, to like roll that into maybe a wee bit of turkey sandwich or something that evening. You know, there's there's an order to that day. And so Paul is saying that um, in those days, there was uh, usually the woman of the house, she was the one that overseen the household administration, how the house would have been ordered for all of those people, how the money that was coming into the house would have been ordered. And so Paul is borrowing that term from that culture to say to him has been giving the manifold wisdom of God has been revealed through him in order to order a household, in order to bring a degree of uh, order to the family. So it never stops being family. It's not like all of a sudden it's becoming a business. It's always family. But there's a godly order to that. And so, Paul, that's why when we get into the letters, like, it's amazing, isn't it? We just take it for granted that all this stuff that Paul was saying, like, was known before, but it wasn't. Like, how the fivefold ministry works, the fact that, you know, there would be apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers. Like, nobody had ever told Paul that. He got that by revelation. How the fact that Jews and Gentiles were going to live together. Nobody had ever... He got that by revel- God was revealing stuff to him about how the church was going to be ordered, how you would raise up elders, what the qualifications for elders should be, how elders should serve the body, the expectations on the church. All of that, Paul is getting all of that by revelation as he's just watching the story of God unfold. And uh, I say that to you because as we lead and grow and establish and plant and pioneer church and new church, it's important for us not just to get that out of books or conferences, as important as they are. It's important that we get that out of revelation. It's important that we step into the mystery of who God is, because he wants to reveal that revelation so we can establish households of faith, not just here, but all over the nation. Are you with me? Just making sense? Brilliant. So Paul gets on with it, and through the insight of the Holy Spirit, he, re- he, re- he receives this plan. God showed him that the fundamental centrality of the church was in his heart. And so Paul just didn't do mission. He planted churches. Yeah, He planted churches. He expanded the gospel. He established the ecclesia, the the called out ones, who people living under the lordship of Jesus, growing up in the love of Jesus, were multiplying to make each other's known, uh, to make his name known. Because the call on the church, the call on you and me, your destiny is to disciple the nations. You're not here to make up the numbers. You're not here just to come to church on a Sunday. If you're a follower of Jesus, your call is the disciple of nations. And we will all do that in different ways, and it'll start by discipling individuals, but actually our call is to disciple the nations. And so whether you go to the other ends of the earth or not, if you don't go, you should be involved in sending. Yeah? 
if, and if you don't send, then you should maybe be going, right? So we're all caught up, or we all should be caught up. It's not just for the leaders. It's not just for the guys that speak at the front. It's for the whole body to be involved in the discipleship of the nations, right? And here's the thing. I think this is so pertinent, right? Because we're looking out at a world today that isn't doing a very good job of discipling the nations in the way they want to, right? We're all being discipled every day, actually, right? Our children are being discipled. When they're watching TV, when they're playing their video games, they're being discipled. The world is telling them how they should look, what they should think about, how they should view. They are giving them a worldview. That's why we need to disciple them in the Word of God and in and around the church because whether we like it or not, they're being discipled one way or the other. And we want them to be discipled in the ways and the workings of who Jesus is so that we can then disciple the nations. Yeah, And, and the way that we disciple the nations is expanding the gospel, like Paul, preaching the gospel, but then establishing households of faith, establishing the church, helping people find their place in the family of God and taking up a role in the mission of that. And so all we know about the church, how to govern the church, how to appoint leaders, who the leaders should be, how the family should operate, how we should engage with authorities, Paul was given all of that by revelation from God. I, I just find it fascinating. It like blows my mind. I might be a bit of a geek, right? But that kind of stuff just makes me my eyes water. I'm like, how did that, how did this man so in tune with the Lord get that level of revelation? And I suppose that oikonoma, I sort of say to the Lord, Lord, if there's kind of like a, a piece of me, that there's like a central like gene in me <laughs> that like filters everything through, God, would, whatever that was, would you kind of like stamp that in me? Would you make the what I'm living for to be that understanding of the administration of how you want your body and bride in the world in which we live in today to get established and to grow up? in the Lord. And so what I want to leave you with today is three kind of big pictures. So <clears throat> I think that plan, that administration that Paul received, this oikonoma, this sort of heavenly download of the architecture of the church, I think it was like, probably in twofold, it was like in the big picture way of what the church was doing in its most global widest sense. And then I think he got it in so like the big family of God, all the families, but then I think he also got it in for the for the wee families of God, for like this. Does that make sense? So I think God gave him that uh, mystery and revelation for church in, with, a, with a big C, if you want to put it like that, in its, in its biggest family sense around the world, the global witness of who Jesus is in the world today. And I think he also got it for how little households of faith that are being established should be ordered. Does that make sense? And so what I want to do today is probably do the bigger thing just give you three points. Is that all right? Still with me? Promise? Not just saying it? You can't lie in church. <laughs> Here's three ways, right? Three, three ways that I think Paul was getting revelation that the church was central to God's dream for humanity. And the first one is the revelation of God. I think, there we go. The revelation of God's wisdom. This is the verse I've just read in Ephesians 3. I'm going to read it again. His intent was that now through the church the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to rulers and authorities and heavenly realms according to his eternal purposes that he accomplished in Christ Jesus. The manifold wisdom of God, the cosmic purposes of God are being revealed to the powers that govern the universe. How many people know that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, right? We wrestle against principalities and powers. There's a earthly realm and there's a 
supernatural realm, right? The Bible is very cool with that. The Bible is not freaked out. It's very cool in it. There's a, there's a spiritual world and there's a material world, right? And both of those are important in the unfolding of how God's purposes are played out. Right? And the Bible says that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers in high places, against spiritual hosts of wickedness. Right? There is um, a battle going on, in case you didn't know yet. I'm sure many of you have and maybe are carrying some of the scars of that, but we're in a battle. When you signed up, if that's the wrong way to put it, but when you decided to follow Jesus, right, you, you were thrust into a battle. right? Because there is a there is a resistance, and there always has been to the story of God. And, and, and yet Jesus has come, what he's done on the cross, his rising from the dead, has defeated the enemy. The battle, in a sense, is won. Right? Jesus has, the Bible says in Colossians, dragged the principalities and powers through the heavenly places and made a public show of them. Right? So the, the battle is won. We're not, coming, um, we're, we're not going to a victory. We're coming from a victory. Yeah? That it's behind us and we're stepping into the momentum of what the cross does in order to see that fully realized one day when Jesus returns, right? So we step in. And so what Jesus is saying, as we as the church don't kind of like spectate and go, I wonder if the angels could sort this stuff out. But when we actually with courage and confidence step into the flow of the victory of the cross, what is happening in that through us, through the church doing it, the principalities and powers, the wisdom of God that's being revealed through us, the principalities and powers are like completely dumbfounded and confounded. That's how they get their answers. That's how they are disarmed. That's are like both in the angelic, I believe, and the demonic. The demonic is like, we can't cope with this. And the angelic are going, come on, church, because God hasn't called us to do that. We're the heavenly messengers that just come to help. God has called these image bearers of God of God himself, to do this as his body. And so God's wisdom is being revealed through the church, right? That's why I think we need to be really careful as a church that we don't enter into the same spirit of the day. So I, I find it, I'm not saying we can't have opinions, and it's important that we do have opinions on certain things, right? But when we enter into the same spirit of the day by putting our own messages on Facebook or wherever else about what we think about the political situation of the day, right? What often happens is we just get caught up in the same political religious spirit that's happening. Where God doesn't want us just to have opinions. God wants to reveal the wisdom that can only be revealed from him that will confound the principalities and powers. Does that make sense? So it's not like we just get caught up in a wave of opinion. What we actually hear, the revelation from God, that we sometimes keep our mouths shut and get on with being what Jesus has called us to be and praying because that's the way things are going to change. I want you to imagine in those days, as I alluded to already, there was this Roman Empire, right, who was advancing. And the way that they were advancing was through power, through military might, through military strength, through the love of money. And yet, in all of that going on, and man's independence, and man flexing his muscles and saying, look at me, and that was all manifested in and through something like the Roman Empire. These Christ-like ones, these ones that were like Jesus, were laying down their lives, were uh, not counting their lives worthy. We're showing a sacrificial love. We're showing that there's a love that Jesus showed that's actually stronger than death. And it's the love that lays down its life that is the greatest power in the universe. It doesn't make sense. Sure, it doesn't. It wrecks your head, but it's supposed to. Because that's why Jesus said, the foolishness of God 
is stronger than the wisdom of man. The foolishness of the cross. It doesn't, it's foolish to people in the world that the, most, it, that the most powerful act ever in history was the most self-sacrificial act in history. I know you need to think about that for a minute because I do too. But the most powerful act in history was the most self-sacrificial act in history. It was love so strong that it raised the dead and conquered the grave. Yeah? And so it's a wisdom that confounds principalities and powers. But it's completely countercultural. But it's that wisdom that topples the, the, the topples the principalities. And it's that wisdom that changes the atmosphere. And it's that wisdom that advances the gospel. And Paul's revelation, the oikonoma, if you like, that he was receiving from, from God was that the church was going to be the revelation of that wisdom. You and me. Yeah? It's, it's, you can't blame anybody else. It's on our watch. It's our time. Yeah? And, and that's why we need to pray more than anything else. Like even, even with the whole situation at the minute, the Bible says, you know, pray for those in authority that you may have a quiet and peaceable life. Right? You can't oppose, if the church, I don't believe, can afford to be cynical if it's not praying. Because if our prayers are contingent on having a peaceable and quiet life, and we're not praying, then we, we, have, no, we, have, we have no voice, we have no, vo- no reason to criticize. Does that make sense? And so, because if when we pray, and I'm, as again, I'm not saying we can't, can't have a, a, opinions, but we, we need to realize that our primary call is to reveal the wisdom of God, not the wisdom of man. And that's completely countercultural. All of creation is waiting for that day when the sons of God will reveal who we really are. The cross and the resurrection didn't just disarm the enemy, it created the church. The cross and the resurrection wasn't just for our individual salvation. It was for God's dream, which was a family. Yeah, and that's why we've been brought together today. So number one, the church was the revelation of God's wisdom. And this is what Paul was hearing. That we would live lives where like Jesus, that will show that as we love sacrificially and as we lay down our lives, as we model what he modeled, which was to leave this place of glory, self-empty himself, lay down his life, that that and that alone is going to conquer death, sin, and hell. And uh, we need to do the same. And as we live that out, as we use a different, a different tone, as we talk with it, with it in a different way, as we bring peace and not division, as we speak about love and not hate, as we forgive those who should not be forgiven, yeah? as we do that, then we model this way and we reveal the wisdom of God and it changes the atmosphere. The second one, it's Paul was getting the revelation that this church was going to be one family. God has always, just before I read that scripture, God has always wanted one family. The mystery that Paul was getting was that this was good news, not just for the Jews, but this was good news for the Gentiles. This was always been God's intention. Remember, he said to Abram, I'm going to make you a father of not just Israel. I'm going to bless your descendants, but I'm going to bless the nations through you. So God always wanted one family, and he planted this seed in this man called Abraham. And the way God had chosen to do it up until this time was through Israel. They would be a chosen people. But God's desire is that through them, they would bring that revelation to the world. 
And so when Jesus comes, he's trying to bring the fullness of this to fruition, that the promises of God are now available not just to the Jews, but to the Gentiles as well. So that means there's no place in the kingdom of God for tribalism or sectarianism or clannishness or me and my we tribe. There's no place for it in the kingdom of God. You can't be a true follower of Jesus and carry a sectarian spirit. You can't. It's just not contingent with what the Bible says and what Jesus says. It's not in the Bible. Okay, so And, and, and yet and we all have to work through that. We all still find out rising up. So I'm not saying you can't be a Christian, but you, you can't allow it to keep on festering in your heart. And worse still, you can't allow it to be in your heart and use the name of God to justify it. Because that's a really dangerous thing to do. Because once you give a virtuous name, like God said this, you're actually, I think, bringing something on yourself that's that is going to be controversial, but I would nearly say is demonic. Because... If you're not for God, you're, you're against them. And who's against God? The devil and, and, the, and, the, and the demons. And so I think it's something inspired by the demonic that would want us to remain sectarian. In, right? Because the plan that Paul was getting, and Paul had to ra- God had to wreck Paul to do this. God had to wreck him. Because this was a Jew who thought no other Gentile deserved anything to do with the kingdom of God. He had to wreck Peter. He had to give Peter an angelic visitation where a, 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 a cloth comes down and Peter's an, an, an animal that Jews weren't supposed to eat. Yeah? And he had to say, and Paul, Paul, he told Peter to eat it, and Peter says, no, not, I'm not allowed to eat it. And Jesus says, them, don't call unclean what I have called clean. And so for some of us, particularly growing up in this country, God has to wreck us. He has to wreck our hearts in a good way. It's tough at the time. We have to let go of something, right? We have to let go. Again, it doesn't mean we don't ha- we can't have opinions or preferences about certain things, but it's all about the heart, isn't it? And and God is making one family. God was making one family: Jew and Gentile, Protestant and Catholic, Jew and Palestinian, Trump lovers and Trump haters. If you're in Jesus, that's not your primary identity. It's an idol. Do you remember when? Uh, Joshua appeared, but he's about to take on Jericho. It's really funny. He's about to take on Jericho, and the angel of the Lord appears, and, Jer- and, and Joshua goes, are you with me, or are you with them? And God says, no. Are you with them, or are you, are you with us? No. <laughs> like, what does that mean? Like, ha- answer the question, God. Are you on our side, or are you on their side? No. Because... What Joshua was learning was God doesn't take sides, he takes over. Yeah? And God wasn't going to be reduced to any tribe. And how the, go back to the first point, the manifold wisdom of God's going to be revealed in our little country is when the church loses how it uses God to prop up their agenda. And so we need to repent of that at times. And so the church should be we're really challenged about this in our own church at the moment. The church should be, in the local body of the church, it should be a representation, a cross-section of the community should be represented in the church, in the local church, because God's making one family of people of every tribe and every tongue. And when Jesus died on the cross, 
he broke down that middle wall. Let me read this scripture. I know it's quite small, but I'll, I'll read it to you if you can see it. Ephesians chapter 2. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one, and has destroyed the barrier. Destroyed the barrier. Destroyed it. Right? He destroyed it. Doesn't exist in Jesus anymore. The dividing wall of hostility by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. Yeah, peace. And in one body to reconcile both of them to God through what? Through the cross by which he put death or hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who are near. Right? So he came to preach peace to those who are far away. That's probably referring to the Gentiles. And peace to those of you who are near. That's the Jews. The shame in all of this is, and it's the shame in the church today, the ones who are near aren't actually getting it. And the ones who are far are often. You know, people that don't really carry any of this religiosity, they come in off the street and they just get saved and filled with the Holy Spirit and you wonder why they've got such such freedom, isn't it? It's not carrying that same religious baggage. For through him we have both access to the Father by one Spirit. Yeah? So God is making one family out of us. And, and, uh, and that's what's beautiful, and I just want to affirm this in this church. This is what's beautiful about this, this fellowship, right? Because as much as we're, our, our, our families are important, our own uh, individual families are important, your family is supposed to find its home in the family of God. Yeah? Your family is supposed to. So, so I, have a, I, 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 cannot, I cannot find any justification for any believer that thinks that they can be a follower of Jesus and not be part of the church. Yeah, I can't find any justification for it in Scripture because God has always wanted a family. And yes, the church makes mistakes. And yes, we get hurt in the church. But often you find the, most, the people most cynical about the church aren't actually in the church. And they've no authority to speak in that if they're not actually in it. Because once when you're in it, then something in you has to change. You love the people that you wouldn't necessarily maybe love if you weren't in the church because it's a family of God that brings us all together into one family from different tribes and tongues and nations. And so there's a sense in which we find a home in the place with people that we might not build home with if we were left to our own devices. But in the family of God, we all come together as one family in order to be part of his family. And it's, so it's important, like, it's important that we get this balance right. Like our own families are really, really, really important. And uh, we've gone through, um, I suppose, a generation where lots of people have been hurt by that because the church became more important than the individual family. And it's really important that we love our own families really well and don't sacrifice them on the altar of the church, right? But in saying that, on the other side, I'm starting to notice a swing the other way where, where lots of people particularly in my generation, are saying, I don't really need to go to church today because, you know, just it's important that I look after my family. We're just going to go, go and have a picnic in the park today. And I'm like, that's not right either. Personally, I, I don't think, I'm, I'm not saying you can't do that ever. And, or, you know, some, everybody maybe needs a day off. Now and again, the holiday, you know, I'm not like being legalistic about it. I'm just saying, once you move to the place where 
my family's more important than the body of Christ, and therefore it kind of comes down the list of priorities. There's, there's two things about that. First and foremost, do you remember when they came to get Jesus? And they said, Jesus, your dinner's ready with your own family. Jesus said, uh-uh. Here's, here's my brothers and sisters. Here's my mothers and fathers. Here, here's my brothers and sisters here. Right? It wasn't just as clear cut as we have sometimes made it. And secondly, if your kids don't value church, if it's a, just an option, right? I'm not saying, yeah, it gets to a certain stage, they have to make their own mind up and get that. But if it's just an option, then it'll just be an option when they grow up. And worse than that, your grandkids will probably not come to church. Because if it's only an option for your kids, it'll probably not even be an option for your grandkids. Yeah? And that's why the family of God is the most beautiful thing, because we learn to grow and develop and become more like Jesus, and we're forced to, because we don't always get on. <laughs> yeah? People rub, people rub us up the wrong way. We're, we're, we're forced into an environment of grace. Not forced, but we're invited, I suppose, into a family of grace where in the midst of all the different traditions and different tribes and different ways of acting and all of that kind of stuff, we realize that under the grace of God, we're one. We realize that none of us deserve God's grace. And the grace of God, see, the grace of God is kind of offensive that way, offensive to our own independence, right? We should have, we should have a church where anything can happen and anyone can come in. I think your church is really healthy when anything could happen or anyone could come in, right? And that's what I want to strive for in our church and the churches that we're part of together that the Holy Spirit can do whatever he wants to do and anybody can come in. You, you want to build a church that's a, that's a f- that now and again the grace of God kind of offends you. It's like, <laughs> see, there's a verse that Jesus talks about a parable, isn't there? I love it. It, it wrecks me all the time. Where the guy that worked uh, in a field and there's a guy that worked from three in the afternoon under the midday sun, really hot, worked all day. There's a, gr- a guy that works from six. And there's a guy that works from nine. And then there's a guy that works from 11 at night. And at midnight, the man comes to pay the wages. And the guy that worked the last hour gets the same money and reward as the guy that worked from three in the hot sun all day. Like that, 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 that wrecks me every time. Everything in me wants to say, Jesus, that's not fair. Yeah? But then when the grace of God gets hold of your life, it becomes a joy when I look at some of the people that come into our church broken, busted. All sorts of issues. Mental health issues. Dysfunctional families. Broken. And when I stand before Jesus, they're going to get the same reward. The ones that get in by the skin of their teeth at the very end are going to get the same. They're going to get the grace of Jesus. Because here's the thing, I, I didn't deserve it either. I didn't deserve the family I got grown up in, the, the good upbringing. I, I, didn't, I didn't deserve all that. This is the grace of God. This is the blessing of the Lord. Yeah? And when we get out of our own kind of little kingdoms into the God's kingdom, we realize this one family is the most beautiful thing. And that's what Paul was getting revelation. And he had to fight for it. Yeah? He had to fight for it. He had to contend for it. He had to come against the religious spirit wherever he went in order to see this one family created because that was God's heart. And then finally, and really quickly, the uh, third one is the worldwide witness. 
of Jesus. Paul described the household as a the church, sorry, as a household, as a building, and specifically as a, a temple. But this wasn't, I don't think, a physical temple. He was talking about a living community where we'd all become part of that family of God together. Uh, it says this in Ephesians chapter 2. It's on the screen too. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of this household, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, which Christ himself was the chief cornerstone of. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises up to become a holy temple. And in him, too, you are being built to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. And so Paul is saying, something is being created here all around the world now. Christ is the cornerstone. The apostles and the prophets are carrying on the message of Jesus. They are instructing the church in the ways of Jesus because they witnessed how Jesus lived. And slowly but surely, the living temple is being built up and we would carry the presence of God, reveal to the world the witness of who Jesus is through our unity and through our building up and establishing as a living temple of God. Christ is the place where the building starts and then we build around it. The Bible uses a few different metaphors. It uses the building built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. So we're a building individually, a temple of the Lord individually, but we're a building corporately. He talks about his spiritual body in Ephesians 1 the Colossians tw- and Colossians 2. The fullness of him who fills all in all. And he talks about his bride. We are the object of his affection. And the way the world will know the witness of Jesus is through the church. It's not just a safe place for caring for people. It's a new and redeemed society in which God himself will dwell. I think there's a quote. Is there that next one a quote there, Kelly? Keep, keep going on the next one. Yeah. Look at this quote from J.B. Phillips. The Christian faith took root and flourished in an atmosphere almost entirely pagan, where cruelty and sexual immorality were taken for granted, where slavery and inferiority of women were almost universal, while superstition and rival religions and all kinds of bogus claims existed on every hand. Within this pagan chaos, the early Christians, by the power of God within them, lived as sons and daughters of God, demonstrating purity and honesty, patience and genuine love. Look, they were pioneers of the new humanity. Are you getting this? To be part of the church is to pioneer a whole new way of living for humanity and helps us understand that the centerpiece of God's plan for humanity was this, what we do as the family of God, pioneers of a new way of living, not people who just like a wee meeting. Yeah? People that have laid down their lives, radically fallen in love with Jesus and said, together, We're going to be the revelation of the wisdom of God. We're going to do that by being one family. And as we join together, we're going to be the worldwide witness of Jesus. And that was the revelation that Paul was getting for this age in which we live, that through the church, his manifold wisdom would be revealed the principalities and powers. And when we model that out in Rich Hill, in Portadown, in Craigavon, in Armagh, in the nation, the world starts to see the goodness of who Jesus really, really is. It's a colony of heaven that we're trying to see become. The church isn't an afterthought. It's not just a nice wee idea God had. 
while he sort of sorted out everything else. It's the centerpiece plan of his heart. It's what Jesus came to die for. And uh, my hope is that today you have a fresh appreciation for what you're part of, what Jesus has saved you for and saved you from, but saved you into. It's always been the Lord's desire that you would be loved by a father and formed in a family. Yeah? Loved by a father and formed in a family. And as we have fresh appreciation for that today, there's a responsibility that comes with it too, isn't it? That we would reflect them well. That you would contribute. Don't be a spectator in the church. You're not supposed to. You weren't designed just to come here on a Sunday and sit and that's it. We all get to play. We've all got a position on the pitch in God's team. And if you're not playing your part, then the whole team misses out. And you were destined for more. And I just really feel it's come to an end today. I feel like I just love to pray for you that in the same way that even as I've talked today, it wouldn't just be information, but it would come to us as revelation, like Paul received it, so that we could get and become part of the ongoing expansion and establishment of the church of Jesus Christ. And we could see it spring up in this nation. All right? Let me pray for you. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus.